that is chartreuse or something, uh, that, that way you'll know you have come to the end of the end of the end, as they say. All right, uh, the, the title of my lesson this morning is based on a book uh, that a guy wrote when he was 73 years old. His name is Norman McLean. They made a movie out of it. Uh, you may have seen that movie. And uh, it, it's the first work of fiction that the University of Chicago, which is known for publishing works of history, uh, they, they published the Standard Greek Dictionary, University of Chicago. Uh, this is the first work of fiction they ever published. And this guy was, uh, had retired from a career of teaching at the University of Chicago. Uh, he, he was married for 37 years. That's one more year than I have been married, which makes that seem not very long right now. Uh, it seemed long when I read it about this guy, but uh, not so much. Uh, and she had passed away eight years before this book was published. After she died, his uh, kids started telling him to think and write, and he did that. And his book uh, was uh, terrifically successful, and I, I highly recommend it to you. It's, it's really, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Let me just point out a couple more things here from this introductory paragraph. Uh, this gal, I don't know how to say her name, Annie Annie Prue, uh, Kathleen, do you know? Yeah. Uh, she uh, read this book, and she talks about in her, she wrote the foreword to it, and some East Coast publisher didn't want to publish it because it had too many trees in it. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I like books with trees in them. And uh, she said, there are few books that have the power to put the reader in such a deep trance that the real world falls utterly away. A river runs through it has that power. And when I read the famous last line, I am haunted by waters, I sighed and looked up. I, I didn't finish that. She looked up and saw a bobcat. She was at a, a cabin in Vermont and she finished, she looks up and there's a bobcat staring right at her. So she will never, you know, she's always separating the vision of that bobcat with reading this book. Uh, you, you may say, well, what in the world does that have to do with anything, much less Revelation 22? But a uh, couple of things. First of all, in Revelation chapter 22, a river runs through it. Through what? Through the city of God. There's a vision of a of a river, and it's described for us. And so that reminded me of this novel. But then did you see what she said here about the power of this book to put you into a trance so that the real world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't doubt that that is true. But if that's true of that book from that guy at that time in 1973, I think, I don't know when it was published, but uh, how much more is it true of Revelation chapter 22? And some of you have already kind of been reflecting on that fact. That, and it, th th Revelation 22 doesn't make the real world fade away, but it does give you a perspective on the real world that every Christian is supposed to have. That's what this book is given to us for. It's to look at life from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, think about this. Think about, you see these FedEx planes flying over. Usually they're pretty low in the sky. But then every once in a while you see a, a plane that's way up there. What, Ron, 30,000 feet or something, heading to San Diego or Los Angeles or wherever. In my mind, Des Moines. But uh, 
you know, if you're way up there and you're looking at the interstate, uh, that car is going to get to that traffic jam soon. That car doesn't think it's soon. The kids in the back seat of that car certainly don't think it's soon. But from that perspective, it's soon. I want to talk about that because three three times in this chapter, we are told that Jesus is coming back soon. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, suffice it to say that far greater than uh, that book by Norman MacLean, which I recommend, uh, this chapter uh, has, has that kind of power. Okay, uh, the outline for chapter 22 is virtually impossible to come up with. Basically, we have uh, a section at the top of the chapter from the previous series of visions, and then we have an epilogue that really consists of several somewhat isolated statements. Now, uh, here's a little technicality for you that you probably don't think about very much, but it's this. You know this because you've, uh, you've heard it said, the chapters and the verses in your Bible were not part of the original Bible. You know that, right? Uh, there's a guy named Gordon Fee for whom I have high regard because I think he's a master Actually, I, not only a master, but a mentor, personal mentor of doing what I've tried to do with this book, which is to let you see what this book is saying. And I'm, I've failed. I've failed miserably because so much of what I've said is what other people have said about this book. But I've, uh, I've tried, at least in my mind, to expose us to the message of this book of Revelation. So, Gordon Fee says, and did anybody, maybe you do have, or did you have uh, a Bible that had two columns and then a reference bar in the middle, and every verse was set set aside like that? Well, Gordon Fee has taught a lot of people who have Bibles like that. That was my first Bible. Two, Two references there are two columns, a reference bar in the middle with all the cross-references in it, and every verse, every verse a paragraph. It wasn't set out in paragraphs. Hey, guys, that's not the way the Bible was written. Uh, this, this ESV I like. I always try. I, I will never not try to get one that has one column. I don't want two columns. I want one column so that it goes all the way across. I want my Bible to be laid out in paragraphs, all right? So if you have one of those Bibles that has, you know, verse 1, 2, 3, every verse a paragraph, that's deceptive because that's not the way it was written, nor is it the way you should think about reading the Bible, okay? Uh, the message is set out in paragraphs, uh, the the English Standard Version, the, the message is on the... Uh, we have this language, Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. So we don't know Greek, so we have to have somebody translate it for us into English. 
Those translations are called versions, versions. We have the New American Standard Version. We have the King James Version. We have the English Standard Version. We have the Message. We have the Living Bible. We have the New Living Bible. On and on and on and on it goes. People who translate Greek into English have different philosophies and attitudes when they translate. Some people want to give you what they would call the literal word-for-word translation. Now, don't be deceived into thinking those are better. They're not necessarily better. Don't be deceived in thinking that some version... God blesses all versions unless there's some inherent desire to corrupt it. I've never seen that. Uh, I've heard people talk about that, but I've never seen that. Uh, So there's some versions that try to be real literal, but there are other versions that try to put it into English the way we talk it, okay? And so there's a spectrum there. On the literal side of the spectrum would be the King James Version, which is a terrific translation. It just happens to be an English that we don't use anymore. So it's it's virtually inaccessible to young people or second language speakers, etc. Uh, but if you like, it's a terrific translation. Uh, the, the New American Standard, the English Standard, etc. The problem with those versions, I feel, and Gordon Fee says it too, he calls it Greeklish. It's not the way anybody talks. And so, if you're trying to hear the Word of God as it was first written, as John wrote it, John wrote it in a way that anybody on the street in Pergamum could understand that language. Uh, So anyway, on the other side are the ones that we would say take liberties into translating it, and the message would certainly be down on that end of, this is, um, he translated it into American. Uh, we can discuss this later, and I'm getting way off track here. I, I, I'm not a... You, you won't hear me bashing any versions. Uh, my Bible translator friend who just published a New Testament in Taidam, Southeast Asian language, said, Bible translations are like arguing about which cut of steak is the best. They're all God's Word. They're all good. The best translation is the one you read. Okay, so don't get into art. In my opinion, we can talk about it if you feel strongly about it, but uh, I, I would not want to argue about which version is the best. I, I think a lot of those arguments are naive. Okay, uh, I totally forgot where we were and what I was trying to say. Uh, does he? Okay. Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. All right, now I remember. Okay, chapters and verses, right? Okay. Uh, look at the notes under the introductory paragraph. I have a quote from Gordon Fee who says this, despite one of the most disastrous of all the chapter breaks in the New Testament, overall the vision simply soars. So he calls whoever divide. <laughs> I, I was envisioning all these cartoons about these guys in the 1500s that, uh, you know, put these chapter breaks in there. Uh, But Gordon Fee says, making chapter 22 begin at verse 1 instead of verse 6, he says is one of the most disastrous chapter breaks in the whole New Testament. 
Now, I bring that up. I share his conviction with you to help you think. And this is what he says time after time. Get rid of the numbers. Get rid of the numbers. It's not every verse a paragraph. You, You need to read it like John wrote it. If nothing else, look for the phrases like in chapter 22, uh, he said to me, uh, Annie said to me, uh, you know, those kind of things. See the way the chapter's broken up. And if you have a Bible that's every verse a paragraph, you've got an inherent challenge to do that. Okay? Okay, that's enough out of that. All right, to the text now. Verses 1 through 5, again, really is the conclusion of... Just, just glance with me at chapter 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, The dwelling place of God is with man. Uh, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Uh, Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Uh, Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. uh, Chapter 22, verse 1, then, right after all that, same thing, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Verses 1 through 5 have a river and a tree in them, okay, which gets my attention. Anybody like trout fishing in here? Uh, Anybody? Nobody? Okay. I'm not a trout fisherman either, so we're all in this together. (laughs) But I love rivers. Oh, yeah, you do. You're Bill. Come on. Thank you. Uh, Have you been to rivers that were beautiful? The sound the light, the scenery. Some rivers aren't so pretty, but I spent a summer in northern Ontario. I was, I was out in a canoe on a river for 28 days. It was, it was a wonderful experience. We were on this one river for five days. Beautiful. Friends, uh, the angel showed me, John speaking, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Where is it coming from? What's the source of the river? Do you see it in verse 1? The throne of God and of the Lamb. And it's flowing through the middle of the street of the city. This, this is what he saw in his mind. John saw this. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. This is a little confusing to me. If, if you're literally in your mind trying to visualize this, I guess you have to picture it like that giant sequoia with the big hole in it. General Grant may be the one where the cars can drive through the tree. Uh, this tree is on both sides of the river. But another guy said this word for tree is collective. It means trees, okay? Trees on both sides of the river, trees of life. This tree has 12 kinds of fruit. Not 12 pieces of fruit, 12 kinds of fruit. Every month, a different kind of fruit. Maybe there's citrus season. Maybe there's apple and cherry season. I don't know how it works. But this is the vision, this uh, fecundity, this uh, 
abundance. And the theme here in, in this section is life. Yields its fruit each month. Now, uh, when you think of, and I've given you hints in the notes, when you think of a river of the water of life and you think of a tree of life, what do you think of? The Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. The Bible begins with a river. I have the quote for you right here. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And here at the end of the Bible, not flowing out of Eden, but flowing out of this place where God is from the throne of God and the Lamb, there's, there's a river flowing. And this river contains the water of life. Jesus talked about the water of life. Do anybody remember who he was talking to when he talked about a spring of, of life, of water welling up? You, you remember who he was talking to? He was talking to a, a Samaritan. A, not a desirable person if you're a Jew. Kind of a half-breed. They were those people... Uh, they lived over there. Nobody wanted to live over there. They would, they would even go around the country. They wouldn't want to go through. Jesus went through, and he talked about, I'm the living water. So this, this life, where does life come from? It comes from the creator of life. It comes from the author of life. It comes from the king of all. It comes from the throne. It, and do you see, it's not thrones. It's not two thrones. It's one throne. But who's on that throne? God and the Lamb, okay? Uh, we worship this triune God. All right, and then we have uh, all of these. There's no more curse. Uh, his servants are worshiping him. They will see his face. We talk about the beatific vision, the, the most blessed thing you could see, face of God, okay? They'll see his face, their identity, his name is on their foreheads. There's no more night. They don't need any lamps, no security lights, uh, no automatic timers. The Lord God is there. He's their light. And, and they will not only just scratch and eke out a living by their... They're not going to have to work by the sweat of their brow anymore like that curse in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, there's... there's uh, no more thorns and thistles and weed. There's 12 kinds of fruit every month, and they're reigning eternally. Now, uh, how do you know if you're going to be there or not? Okay, we have all these, we have all these statements. If you look at the back side of, of your sheet, I was tr tempted to try to give you some kind of outline, but it would just be manufactured. So all I did was I just pulled out all the various statements, and there are several of them here. It looks like there's 12 to 15 of them. But among the statements, there, there are so many things, and you've, you've already seen a lot of them, but uh, certainly we have this idea that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Three times it says it. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, verse 7 Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. Uh, back up to verse 6, 
He has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And then down in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then the response, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that. Okay, soon, this, this was written in the first century. We're in the 21st century. That means there's been 2,000 years uh, since this was written. You can read the material that I gave you in the notes, but the thing that meant the most to me is that the New Testament regularly says He's coming soon. It just says that. But here in the book of Revelation, we also have this sense of delay. Do you remember chapter 6? How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, we who have paid the ultimate price for our faith? How long? And he says, wait a little while. And then in chapter 11, uh, it says they prophesy for 1,260 days, for, for three and a half years. So, so there's this, here's the word, imminence. Imminence. It's hard to spell. Uh, it means soon, okay? Uh, Dad, when are you coming? I'm, I'm coming soon. Well, for the kid, it feels like an eternity. But, but for the father, he says, I'm coming soon. So you have imminence. He's coming soon. That's what he says. Clearly, he says three times, I'm coming soon. But we also have this delay. What's that delay about? Well, Peter tells us, 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us, and, and you could read it for yourself, uh, Jesus or Peter says, you know, with the Lord, who is not constrained by time the way we are, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And he also talks about people who scoff, and they say, soon? He's not coming back soon. Where's this promise that he talked about? You, you can read it for yourself in the chapter there. But then Peter, with some perspective that Jesus taught him, says, he's patient. He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but having commanded the disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, he wants people to hear that gospel and repent. This is a day of salvation. So we hold those two as, as, they, as Paul held them. Again, you can consult. I did a whole paper on this in chapter 1. Paul thought it was coming soon. Paul thought that he was gonna, that Jesus was coming back before he died. And so throughout the history of the church, there's this sense of urgency certainty, confidence, and patient endurance. How long, O oh Lord? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Come soon. Thank you that you are coming soon. Picture, if you will, an uh, archery target, big archery target. It's got big circles on it. There's a bullseye, etc. Okay, you picturing that? Okay, now, Pretend like you turn that target sideways, and here you have a little disc, okay? And then here you have a bigger disc, and then here you have a bigger disc. When you look straight onto it, it looks like there's no space 
whatsoever. But when you turn it sideways, you, you realize, oh, there's, there's space between those disks. Uh, from God's perspective, everything is fulfilled in Christ. Your lives are hidden with Christ in God. Christ has already been crucified, raised from the dead. He's seated in heaven. The kingdom is fully arrived in heaven. And yet, we wait and ask, how long? And he answers, soon. From our perspective, as we look sideways, the first coming and the second coming, there's a lot of time in there. But not from God's perspective at all. So, I don't know if that helps you, but that's the tension that we're living in. Somebody said it. It's the hope that we have. He's coming. He's not going to leave us. We may go to him before he returns, and so be it. Uh, But he's coming back soon. And we need to be crystal clear, like the river of that water of life. Are you in the people of God? Are you in that city? Are you part of that bride of Christ? Or are you on the outside thinking you are? That's not something you want to mess around with. Because ultimately, it's about the people of God, the people who are following the Lamb, the people who have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb, like Janice reminded of earlier. Those are the ones in the city. Everybody else, lake of fire. You can be clear about that. That's why he came. That's what the gospel is about. We trust in what he did, not in what we do. Our righteousness and acceptability before God is based on the righteousness of his son, not on ours. So in faith and hope in Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, we continue to persevere. We continue to worship God and not lesser things. We continue to live these holy lives. So the purpose of prophecy is purity and praise and proclamation and perseverance. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that this word is always here for us. We thank you for the admonition that we are to worship you. We thank you for the admonition that you are coming and coming soon. Our lives are not going to go on this way forever. May you give us that sense of clarity on our experience from your perspective. May we see earth from the vantage point of heaven. May we see time from the perspective of eternity. Uh, We pray this now, Lord Jesus, with great gratitude to you uh, for coming and laying down your life that we could drink this living water absolutely free. Amen.